Let me ask you to open up with me now to the book of Exodus and chapter 6. The book of Exodus and chapter 6. And as you're turning there, let me ask you to think for a moment about the job that lies ahead for Moses. God has called him to go and to stand before Pharaoh, the most powerful man of the world in that time. God has called Moses to lead the Israelites out of this nation, despite the fact that the Egyptians are more numerous, stronger, have a mighty military. From every human way of looking at this, the mission God has given Moses appears to be a suicide mission. And if somehow, by some miracle, some of the Israelites make it out of Egypt alive, Moses is then to lead them across the Sinai wilderness into the promised land of Canaan. And there are peoples who inhabit this Sinai wilderness who are going to stand as obstacles in the way. And then, once they reach Canaan, the promised land, there are people there. And they're not just going to leave their homes and give their land over to the Israelites. So the mission that stands before Moses could rightly be called a mission impossible. Certainly, for this to succeed at all, Moses is going to have to be an amazing, strong, very winsome, persuasive leader. And yet, when we left Exodus 5 last Sunday, where did we leave Moses? We left him discouraged, on his face before God, confused. He had gone before Pharaoh. He had demanded that Pharaoh let God's people leave Egypt. Pharaoh said, no. And then insulted Moses and insulted Moses' God by making the work of the Israelites even more severe. In other words, one chapter into this mission, nothing good has happened. Moses was rejected by Pharaoh, and he had no response. Moses is a broken man. He's discouraged with the people of Israel already turning against him. The Israelites themselves are broken in spirit. In other words, as we come to Exodus chapter 6, things are looking grim. And this morning we're going to see how God comes and meets Moses and the people of Israel in the midst of their discouragement. We're going to see first what God says to Moses. And then we're going to see what God tells Moses to say to the people. Mount Hermon, there is a lot of application in these verses for us. There is application for those of us in this room who are in a season of discouragement. I pray that God will lift your drooping head this morning. And there is application in this passage for all of us in teaching us how to encourage and care for and counsel a discouraged brother or sister in Christ. 
There's even application here about how we are to receive encouragement when it is brought to us. So this is a rich passage. Let's begin with those words that God speaks directly to Moses in order to strengthen him and encourage him. Let's begin in verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So what does God say to encourage His servant Moses? I see at least four areas of encouragement in this passage. First, God reminds Moses of His sovereignty. God reminds Moses of His sovereignty. And I love the way God does this. Because Moses, at the end of chapter 5, says this, Since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. That was Moses' complaint. And God's response? Now you shall see what I shall do to Pharaoh. It's as if God is saying, Moses, I have everything set up exactly the way I had planned. Pharaoh is now exactly where I want him to be. The stage has been set. The the chess pieces are all in the right places. Moses, everything to this point has been preliminary. Now, Moses, you are going to see me work. This statement of God's sovereignty in verse 1 is amazing. God basically says that the very same Pharaoh who is hell-bent on keeping Israel under his thumb in Egypt, is going to send them away. More than that, he is going to drive them out of the land. I mean, this seems like the most unlikely thing of all. And yet God is declaring that he is sovereign over Pharaoh, even over the heart and the will of Pharaoh. Don't be discouraged, Moses. Everything is exactly as it is supposed to be, completely within my control as part of my plan. There are few doctrines sweeter and more comforting to the Christian than the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. If you weaken that doctrine, you weaken your source of comfort in moments of trouble. But then second... We see here that God reminds Moses of his identity. In verse 1, God reminds Moses of his sovereignty. In verse 2, God reminds Moses of his identity. And by his, I mean God's identity. What does God say in verse 2? I am the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Yahweh, Jehovah. 
I am not some puny God, Moses. I am not some fictitious God. I am not one among the plethora of weak Egyptian gods. Moses, I am the I am. Moses, why are you discouraged? Have you forgotten whose bidding you are doing? Have you forgotten that I, Jehovah, am on your side? If I am for you, Moses, who can be against you? I have to emphasize this because I think this is actually the main truth being taught in all of verses 1-13. through 13. Again and again and again in this passage, we find God saying, I am the Lord. God declares these wonderful things that He is going to do. And how does He back up His promises? How does He guarantee that His promises will come true? He backs up His promises with these four words in English. I am the Lord. These four words are meant to flood our hearts with confidence and with encouragement. When we are down, when we are depressed, when we are hurting, we hear God say to us, I am the Lord. What does Proverbs 18.10 say? It says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. There's a verse to memorize and to hold close to your heart. Where does the Christian find safety and help in time of need? The Christian runs into the tower of the name of God. That is, in a moment of crisis, in a moment of trouble, in a moment of worry and despair, we run to the name of our God. We remember who our God is. And as we remember who our God is, we find strength and we find solace and we find hope. Uh, Picture David. And those fighting men who were traveling with David. Saul still on the throne. Saul still leading a manhunt to kill David. And David has his his warriors with him and they're following him because they believe that he is God's man for the hour. This group of fighters believes that David is the rightful king of Israel. They are ready to live or die for David And David and his men returned to the town of Ziklag where their wives and their children had been staying while they were out fighting. And what do they find? They find that the town is empty. They find that the town is smoldering with fire. The Amalekites have come into the city, burnt it with fire, and taken their wives and their children. David's own two wives, Ahinoam and Abigail, have been kidnapped. We're told that David and his men wept until they were too weak to weep anymore. And then suddenly, the grief of David's men began to turn into bitterness and anger towards him. These loyal fighters were no longer loyal. They started turning against him. There was talk in the camp of stoning David to death. 
And here we find David at one of the lowest moments of his life. And what does David do? 1 Samuel 30, verse 6, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. David, like a righteous man, ran into the tower of the name of the Lord. He ran in his heart to the person and the character of his God. David took his grief David took his sorrow. David took his confusion. David took his broken heart over his kidnapped wives. And he ran to his God. And he remembered who his God is. He remembered the wisdom and the power and the love and the justice of God. And as David looked to God, he found encouragement and he found strength. If this God is for me, who can be against me? Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And in this strength, the Amalekites were defeated and the wives and the children were rescued and the fame of David continued to grow. Mount Hermon, where do you run when you are broken or hurting or weary or discouraged? Do you remember who your God is? Do you remember that He is the Lord, the I Am, the immutable, sovereign, undefeatable, never-failing God? Do you strengthen yourself in Him? Third, God encourages Moses by reminding him of his past faithfulness. Of his past faithfulness. We see this in verses 3 and 4. But I I need to explain something here about these two verses for this to make sense. So do you see in verse 3, everybody see this, look in your Bibles, verse 3, where we read, I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. That is El Shaddai in Hebrew. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, I am who I am, I did not make myself known to them. So the ESV, following the King James Version, like most other translations, translates this verse as if it is saying that God did not reveal His name, Yahweh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The way this verse is written, it would seem that God did not make His name known until He revealed it to Moses at the burning bush. There is a major problem with that translation. The problem is that we know from the book of Genesis that God did indeed reveal His name to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. Uh, In fact, we talked before about how Abraham brought God's name with him when he visited Egypt. We talked about how this name, I am who I am, has now been taken by the Egyptians and is being used of their chief god, Re, also called Ra. More than that, this is now a name being used of the Pharaoh himself. In Egyptian, one title for the Pharaoh is now the I Am. How do we know that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob did indeed know the name of God? In Genesis 22, we find God speaking to Abraham and He uses His name, Yahweh, Jehovah, I Am who I am. 
In Genesis 28, God does the same thing in speaking to Jacob. In Genesis 14 and Genesis 15, Abraham speaks of God by his name. Jacob does the same thing in Genesis 28. So unless Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, put those words into God's mouth and into the mouths of the patriarchs, the evidence seems pretty clear. These men did know the name of God. And therefore, many commentators say that our translations are translating this verse wrongly. It can be equally correctly translated this way. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai, and by my name Yahweh, did I not make myself known to them? You hear the big difference in how that's translated? This verse has the same construction as verses in Numbers 23, 2 Samuel 23, 2 Kings 5, Jeremiah 18, Jonah 4, Job 11, Job 30, and more. And there the verses are all translated as questions that begin with the words, Did I not? Or will he not? So for example, listen to Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? And our verse here in Exodus, has the same type of structure. And therefore, the evidence seems to support that God is not saying that He revealed His name to Moses for the first time, but something much better. God is encouraging Moses to look back at his forefathers, to look back at Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and He's saying, I revealed Myself to them too. And I kept My promises. I was not unfaithful to them to whom I revealed my name. Didn't Abraham have a son when he was a hundred years old? Hasn't God turned Abraham's descendants into a multitude of people just like he promised? In other words, the impetus of verses 3 and 4 is this. Moses, why are you so cast down? Am I not the same God who revealed Himself to your forefathers and kept His promises to them? Isn't the very nation of Israel that you're about to lead out of Egypt evidence that I can keep my promises? And so this is a call for Moses to see God's past faithfulness. Moses, as your fathers trusted me, now you trust me. I will keep my promises to you too. Mount Hermon, we stand on the shoulders of millions of Christians who've come before us. And God has proven Himself faithful to every single one. And we can look at the past of our own lives and see how God has kept His promises to us. Let us trust our God. He is faithful. And then fourth... God reminds Moses of his present engagement. God reminds Moses of his present engagement. This is verse 5. Everybody see this in verse 5? Yes, the people of God are, are disheartened in their suffering. Yes, Moses is discouraged and confused. But it's not as if God is distant. 
It's not as if God is far off. It's not as if God has taken a vacation somewhere and left Moses and Israel forsaken here in Egypt. God reminds Moses that he is presently engaged in working all things for their good. He is at work right now for their welfare to bring about their salvation from Egypt. Verse 5, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves and I have remembered my covenant. How good to know in our distress, that our God is not far off, but is right there with us. He sees and He hears and He is keeping His promises. Have you ever been in a moment of distress and you needed to reach somebody and you just couldn't seem to reach them? You called them and you called them and you called them and you called them and in that moment maybe their cell phone was turned off or maybe they didn't have a cell phone or whatever it was and you you couldn't reach them and you needed them. God says to Moses, I'm not like that. I see and I hear and I am working. So having seen what God says to Moses, what is the application for us? We'll see that all four of these encouragements that God spoke to Moses are applicable to any person in this room who is a Christian. If you're a Christian, you take these same encouragements to heart. In your moment of trouble, remember the sovereignty of God. Remember who your God is and run to His name. In your discouragement, see how God has been faithful in the past and trust that He will be faithful today. And finally, remember that God is with you and He will not forsake you. Now, these truths not only teach us what we ought to remember to find encouragement from our God in our own trouble, but they teach us how to offer counsel and comfort to hurting brothers and sisters in Christ around us. Have you ever been around a brother or sister that's hurting and you just said, I don't know what to say. I don't know what words to use. Here's some words to use. (laughs) Here's some encouragements that you can say. Biblical, life-giving, hope-building encouragement. We learn here from the wonderful counselor how to counsel. Let the psychologists of the world speak about how we are all victims of our circumstances. Let them blame your troubles on your childhood and your environment. Let the scientists say that your problems are because of your genes and they're not really your fault. Let the Dr. Phil's and the self-help books of this world tell you five easy steps to fix your life. At the end of the day, almost all of that counsel is chaff blowing away in the wind. But here in the pages of Scripture is solid truth. Here is true light. Here is true wisdom. So let us know these truths. Let's have these truths welling within us so that in that moment, when we're with a hurting brother or sister, we can become a fountain of wisdom and give them the counsel and the help and the encouragement that they need. Now, much more briefly, let's notice what God tells Moses to say to the discouraged people of Israel. What is God's message for them So let's read verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. 
I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. What do we see here? First, just like with Moses, God is reminding His people of His identity, who He is. It's the main point of the whole passage. What's the first thing God says to His people in verse 6? I am the Lord. What's the last thing God says to His people in verse 8? I am the Lord. And verse 7 doesn't get left out either. God says, you shall know that I am the Lord your God. At the heart of God's message to His discouraged people is for them to look away from their troubles, to look away from all of the mess around them and to see Him. Behold your God. He is your strength. He is your encouragement. In the second place, God reminds His people of His promises. He sets before them a great hope. He he will, He will, He will. Did you hear that? Over and over and over again in the passage. Here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to bring you out of your suffering. I'm going to bring you out of your slavery. I'm going to redeem you with a mighty arm through acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. In other words, God says that He is about to put on display His mighty love for His people. And they will see it. He says, I am about to demonstrate my love for you in such a way that you will know it. You will know who I am and you will know my relationship with you. You will see that I am the true God. You will see that I am the God who keeps His promises to your fathers. And you will see that I am your God and you are my people. They may not be willing to hear it right now because their work just got increased. And right now they're hurting and they're bitter and they're upset and they're frustrated. But God is telling them ahead of time what's about to happen so that when it happens, they will know that He truly is the Lord. How precious are the promises of God when we embrace them. When we think about what is ahead for us as Christians... Does it not give you hope to carry on? When you think about the fact that God's promises to you are based on promises made between the Father and the Son in eternity past, and their commitment to one another to save a people for their glory, does that not give you an awesome security? I wonder, do you often look to the sky wondering if today might be the day that your Savior comes back to get you? Do you often think about your looming death, not with fear, but with tears in your eyes, because you are ready to be with your Savior? Do you ever meditate on those words from Revelation that every tear will be wiped away, and does your heart just long for that day to come? Friends, it is believing the promises of God that gives us strength in the midst of our tribulations. How will you endure 
without faith in God's promises. Imagine many of you know the story of John Harper, a very gifted preacher, very similar to to Charles Spurgeon in a lot of ways. Uh, He was raised in a godly home, converted to Christ at the age of 14, began preaching at age 18, and in 1897, at the age of 25, he was the pastor of Paisley Road Baptist Church in Glasgow, Scotland. And the church exploded, expanding from 25 members to over 500 members in a very short period of time. That church still exists today is Harper Memorial Baptist Church in Glasgow. In 1912, he was now pastoring in London, and he was invited by Moody Church in Chicago to come preach there for several weeks. His wife had died. But the 39-year-old Harper took his sister and his six-year-old daughter along with him on the trip to the States. And the ship they boarded for their passage was the Titanic. And when the iceberg was hit and the ship began to sink, his sister and his daughter made it safely aboard the lifeboats. But he began preaching the gospel to anyone who would listen to him. If you remember the story, you know there weren't enough life jackets aboard the ship. Harper had one. But when he talked to a fellow who said, he said, Sir, are you saved? And and the fellow said he was not. Harper gave his life vest to him and said, You need this far more than I do. In that moment, he gave up his chance of survival. Later, folks told of how he clung to a piece of wreckage in the icy water and he was trying to swim on it, seeking to move closer to anyone else he saw, asking them if they knew the gospel of Jesus Christ and if they didn't. He would share it as quickly as he could, urge the people to call out on Christ and then he would move on to another spot. One man gave this testimony. He said, I was one of only six people out of over 1,500 to be pulled from the icy waters on that dreadful night. Like hundreds around me, I found myself struggling in the cold, dark waters of the North Atlantic. The wail of the perishing was ringing in my ears when there floated by me a man who called out to me, Sir, is your soul saved? Then I heard him call out to others and everyone around me as they were sinking beneath the waters. And there, alone in that night, with two miles of water beneath my feet, I cried out to Christ to save my soul. He said, I was John Harper's final convert. Why was John Harper willing to lose his life? Why was he willing to give up his life vest to save an unsaved man? What was it that he was sure of concerning himself that he wanted other people to be sure of? It was the promise of God. He was so confident in God's promise that there is a salvation in Jesus Christ and a place called heaven that he was willing to stake his life on. And this really is the issue for you and for me. Are we willing to look beyond our circumstances? And are we to see that the promises of God are the surest things of all? Very quickly, notice the last verses 9 through 13. Verses 9 through 13. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. 
So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So in verse 9, the people respond to these wonderful promises of God by not listening. They felt their discouragement. They saw their harsh slavery. And frankly, the words that Moses brought to them from God just didn't seem very believable to them. What they saw with the eyes in their heads seemed more certain to them than what they ought to have been seeing with the eyes of faith. And what was the result of their unbelief? Their leader Moses is now more discouraged. He finds himself not believing the wonderful things that God said to him. When God says to Moses, now Moses, go back before Pharaoh, Moses responds in verse 12 by saying, Behold, the people of Israel haven't listened to me. How then will Pharaoh listen to me? I am of uncircumcised lips. What does that mean, uncircumcised lips? For something to be circumcised, it was being set apart as holy for the Lord, as useful for the Lord. Moses is saying, clearly my lips are unuseful. I already went to Pharaoh once, that didn't work. Now I've gone to the people of Israel with your promises and they've rejected me. Can't you see, God? My lips just aren't the lips you need. I don't have it. I don't have the gift. I don't have the ability. I am not fit to serve you in this way. It's the same protest he made back in chapter 4. This is how chapter 6 ends, by the way. By the end of this chapter, Moses will still be in this state. He has been given by God so many reasons to trust Him. The people of Israel have been given so many reasons to trust God. But this chapter is going to end with all of these people still discouraged, beaten down, without hope. Why? Because they are not receiving the Word of God with faith. This is our closing application. All of the encouragements in the world even coming from the mouth of God Himself, will not matter if you will not receive them with faith. Dear Christian, do you believe what the Bible says about you? Do you believe what God has said to you? When a Christian brother or sister comes to you in your trouble and they speak the Word of God to you, do you respond with belief or with unbelief? I'm not asking you if you know the promises of God. I'm assuming you know them. It's one thing to know them. It's another thing to believe them. It's another thing to have your trust in them, your hope in them, your roots in them, drawing your strength and your nourishment from them. The promises of God are like fuel in a car. The fuel does no good until the engine is started and the fuel begins to run through the system. Having God's promises in your head is a good thing. It's important to have God's promises right here. But it is faith that starts the engine of your soul and runs the promises of God through your heart, through your attitudes, through your affections, through your worldview. Do you believe the promises of God this morning? 
And as we end, I must end this way. With the question that John Harper was asking. Are you a saved person? Are you ready to meet your maker? Are you ready to stand before your God? If not, what you need is what we all need. It's faith. Will you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? He's done everything necessary to make you right with God. He doesn't call you to do anything but to turn from your sins and trust Him, to follow Him. Don't pass into eternity unprepared, but rather have God as your God. Receive from Him those promises that will give you the encouragement and the boldness to even lay down your life for others. Let's pray. Father, if there's a person in this room that does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you would save them this morning. Give them a heart to trust you and to love you. Father, for those in this room who may be in a season of hurting, a season of trial, Father, I pray that you would help them to believe these words this morning. Help them to believe your promises. Help them to believe that you are sovereign that you are the Lord God, that you are with them and that you will never forsake them, that you are always faithful, that you will accomplish all that you have promised. Father, help them to believe and to find strength there. And now, Father, we ask that as we leave this place in a few moments, that you would help these words to stick with us and that they would produce fruit in us that you would make us good counselors of one another, good counselors of brothers and sisters in Christ who are hurting. Father, would you make us a faithful church, a church of love and joy and obedience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.